back to 1999 yes that is Maria by Blondie it went to number one on the UK singles chart it was Blondie's sixth UK number one single 20 years after their first number one Heart of Glass and just as another note this day in music history Debbie Harry lead singer of course of Blondie was 54 at the time that this became number one in the UK and it was noted that she was the oldest female to make number one in the UK. Isn't she awesome? Totally awesome. Yeah. I do love her. I once, I do have a funny story with her which I'll make it very quick but I did sit (laughs) in the back of her charger driving across the Brooklyn Bridge many years ago unable to speak. I was so yeah, fangirled out, as the phrase goes. There's more guys. to that story, clearly. There is, there is, but <laughs> it's from it's from last century, so we'll leave it there. Uh, we have been inundated with texts in and around SUVs. Um, I'd say even splits between for and against. Uh, I live in Christchurch, drive a Fiat 500 in the CBD. Why should I be charged the same for parking as an SUV that may have one person in the vehicle and uses twice the parking space as my vehicle? 
See? Okay, noted, John. Thank yeah. you. SUVs should be banned. They're particularly dangerous for pedestrians and in some circumstances for their drivers because they roll more easily, according to this texter. But meanwhile, another texter says most tradies have SUVs, exclamation mark, and it's very, very valid point. Well, most tradies have vans, I would have thought. Mm, that's not an SUV. If you're a tradie, please sort us out yeah. there, Nick. Anything to add? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> once again, people can make the choice of the vehicle that suits them the most. It's not for any of us to decide. And I would just put in a, a word for those of us that have more than 2.4 children. Um, you, know, you often need seven seats. And so a small, you know, you can term it an SUV if you like, but a car that has, you know, six, seven seats is often what you need to, to carry your, your your family around. So, you know, I think it's people do have different needs and, and, you know, I think that needs to be respected in the discussion as well. Absolutely. We need to keep it real. Yeah, but also, just to, just to bite in again, uh, th- that choice, your choices affect other people, right? So the choice of that vehicle, and fair enough if you've got lots of kids to cart around, but but your choice affects people that you might hit in that in your car who are not in the same kind of car as you, or people that you might, like pedestrians, as that, as that texter said. There's an impact on other people from your choice. So it's not just about... A car, hitting, a car hitting someone at speed is going to is going to do them significant damage, isn't it? That's the. I mean, what we yeah, need to do is reduce. Yeah, but more damage if it's a bigger car. We just need to once again. It's the it's the policy at the high level. Improve safety. Um, give people other options uh, and and try to reduce traffic. You know, in congested areas. I love it. Keep texting in to 101 or the panel at rnz.co.nz. There has been a big jump in the number of New Zealand companies disclosing climate-related risks. 40% of entities listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange provide public information about their climate risks. That's according to a study by Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand and two Australian universities. Around 200 companies in New Zealand must make climate disclosures by law. To discuss this further with us, Mark Baker-Jones is a climate change policy advisor and director of Te Whakahaere. Kia ora, Mark. Tēnā koe, Tēnā koe. Why are we seeing a jump in businesses publishing information about their climate risks? Uh, there's, probably, there's probably three main reasons. One is that uh, we are increasingly seeing the impacts of climate change on uh, you know on, on communities and on society, and, and of course that flows through to businesses that are not affected directly and indirectly. Um, the second is that we're seeing um, in New Zealand, we've seen in New Zealand, and we're seeing globally introduction of legislation that requires certain entities, certain companies to report on their climate risk. And, pro- and third, and probably really the biggest driver, is we're seeing investors pushing organisations to reveal their, uh, the, the impact and risk of climate change on the business so that they can make better informed um, investment decisions. And are businesses for the most part on board with reporting their climate risk? Uh, there's sort of a maturity process, I guess, happening where um, the, the disclosure regimes that we, that we see in New Zealand and we're, we're seeing forming you know, in, in other jurisdictions in the EU and Asia-Pacific and Australia um, was largely driven by uh, initially by the Financial Stability Board um, and central banks and financial institutions themselves who recognised there was 
um, a financial risk from climate change and therefore pushed for uh, disclosure to be made. Other organisations who are not, you know, sort of member, who are not financial institutions have taken a little bit longer to understand uh, the rationale behind this and the benefits, I suppose, to um, adopting it and making disclosure. So here in New Zealand, we see, you know, our, our, our large or our banks and our insurers who are, you know, been very progressive and uh, have been pushing very hard and, and totally understand the need to make this disclosure. Some of the listed companies, um, you know, initially didn't quite see how that was relevant to them, but. As they've, you know, uh, investigated and looked at these risks, they realise these risks are sitting there, and they need to understand and they need to account for them. They need to cost them. So, uh, organisations need to go through the sort of stage process where they may be a little reluctant or, or to um, be having to disclose. They just see there's another regu- another regulatory burden. But when they see that there is risk there and they see the benefits of that, they, they very quickly turn and um, and intend to, you know, em- embrace the process pretty quickly. Nikki, any questions for Mark? Yeah, I noticed that uh, some sectors are a bit less uh, keen on this than others and that tech companies in particular weren't, weren't very good at, at their risk reporting. Why do you think that might be? Um, it's, 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 not, it's, the, the companies that we're familiar with are not at all... Um, they, they are concerned about the risk, the climate risk, Often they feel they're not as exposed to the physical impacts of climate change as some other organisations may be, um, and they'll you know they'll build their data centres in, in areas where the impacts are not so great. But what they are concerned about is the cost of the emission from these data centres. You know the electricity that's required to to power them. So even though they may not re- be reporting on the risk, and the risk to be honest may not be that high if they're managing it, they certainly are. Um, locating data centres in, in, in places and in countries that have you know high renewable energy production, so that their emissions are lower. So certainly the concern is that part of it is last part maybe that the level of risk is not seen to be uh, so high. Nick Legger, over mm. to you. What do you think? Well, I'm interested in the fact that our the declaration in New Zealand is that 40 percent of NZX companies are making these disclosures. And that's better than the global rate of 30%. And I'm, I'm, I'm keen to know, does that give us an advantage? And what are some of the reasons behind that? Uh, yes, yeah, so absolutely, uh, I would say there's an advantage there. The, the biggest reason is um, that, and I think when you see next year's report, you'll see a market increase uh, in Australia as well, and, and a greater increase here in New Zealand of companies that are reporting. Because the mandatory disclosure regime here in New Zealand only this year has required organisations to report, and we will start seeing those um, those statements, those climate statements, which sort of line alongside financial statements, appearing in around April this year, but through to April next year, depending on the balance date of those organisations are. So we will see a big increase, um, not only in the organisations that are mandated or required to report, but also their customers and clients and all those along the value and supply chain, because those organisations will be asking their providers, their suppliers, to provide them with disclosure of their risk. They want to know, you know, what that impact will be on the business. Um, but we will also see there are other jurisdictions, as I said, EU uh, throughout Asia Pacific, that are implementing these regimes. They're just simply a, a, a year or so behind us. Uh, as a, to advantage, what we'll be doing is providing more information 
better information about our risk to the market. So there is sort of that early adopter advantage where investors will have a better understanding of, climate, of the impacts of climate change on business here in New Zealand. And hopefully, um, you know, if that risk is being mitigated, um, allocate or you know, distribute some of those flows, those capital flows uh, to, to businesses here. Mark, just to finish, could you, could you just tell us what sort of things are considered climate risks? Yes, we usually clump them into two categories. We have the physical impacts of climate change, so flooding. I think Nick Nick touched on this earlier. Things like flooding and fire and um, you know know, cyclones, those weather events, where they affect the physical asset. Then we talk about the transition risk, and as we understand that the global economy is undergoing a transition towards net zero, where it's um, moving essentially moving away from fossil fuels to other energies. We call that transition risk where um, organisations have to change their business in order to take account of the risks that arise from that change. So these things are like um, development and technology, new renewable technology. They can be um, customer um, expectations around whether an organisation is managing its risk by, you know, by mitigating those risks. Um, you know, customer preferences, there's um, litigation risk, regulatory risk as, as law changes. But generally, we kind of into those two camps. Good on you, Mark. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. No problem. Mark Baker-Jones there, Climate Change Policy Advisor, talking about the big jump in the number of New Zealand companies disclosing climate-related risks. It's quarter to five on the panel text machine is still going off with people talking about, let's have a look here, SUVs and parking. I drive a station wagon. SUVs block my vision when they park next to me. It's just the start of a very long text there. Let's have a look at this one. Uh, SUVs should be banned. They are particularly dangerous for pedestrians. I think we've had that one before. Uh, If you drive around Paris, you might find the small streets and small car parks make SUVs more of a problem. They may be targeting a problematic driver rather than people's choice. And then there are, just so everyone knows, a lot of texts that are supporting the right to choose the size of vehicle without being penalised, Nick. <laughs> I don't want you to think that I'm just focusing in on the ban the SUV in New Zealand Look, cities, but it's definitely a topic of interest. There are so many SUVs on the road that uh, I assume that public opinion must be fairly balanced. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd say that too, since our 2101 is scientifically proved to be, you know... <laughs> <laughs> represent, represent, fully Very accurate, absolutely. <laughs> It's a survey of choice, clearly. Now, here we go. The Education Ministry has ordered statutory interventions at seven schools in the past month. New Zealand Gazette notices show the Ministry has dissolved school boards of trustees and appointed commissioners at Rauremu Avenue School in Whangare and Waihula District School in Otago. Uh, it's also ordered the appointment of limited statutory managers at Poro Tafao School near Foxton, Pormari School in Hutt Valley, Lime Hills and Lochiel Schools near Winton and St Mary's in Hukitika. Limited statutory managers take over some of the functions of school boards of trustees and commissioners take over all of the board's powers. Late last year, 54 schools had limited statutory managers and 16 had commissioners, and it was a story that actually piqued my interest because I thought, let's find out a bit more about school trustees and what goes into a board and why a board would be replaced in this way. Lorraine Kerr is the president of the New Zealand School Trustees Association. Tēnā Lorraine. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the panel. Kia ora. 
Kia ora. I know that you can't speak to the specifics of each of these schools, but I wondered if you could speak to the scenario of, I've given a very brief outline, but what is a statutory intervention when we hear that? What does that mean if that happens to your school? What, what it means is, you're quite right, we do have boards that require extra help. And so with the support of the Ministry of Education, they put in someone with the expertise to support the board in order for them to be effective governors. Being on a school board, people think, oh, I'll put my name forward. This is about my child's education. Um, This is about a community service. When in actual fact, it's much more than that. Much, much more. When you think about boards, whether they like it or not, um, have to comply with something like 15, maybe 60 pieces of legislation. And, and that that is not the role when boards say, I want to do the best I can for my children in my school. They don't know that. And that's a big part of our role is to ensure they do know um, legislation and what their role is in terms of being a governor. And some boards fall over all of that, and um, despite that, we do continue to support them. Did that help? It does. Nikki, have you ever been on a school board? I haven't been on a school board. I, I do serve. I have served on many committees in my time, and I do serve on a board of a of a non profit organisation, the Nutrition Foundation. Um, it strikes me that this is kind of similar in a way to many volunteer boards or committees or organising groups where. As you say, Lorraine, it's not as easy as people think it is, and sometimes people just aren't aren't equipped for the job. It's like you know, I'm, I serve on the body corporate committee of my building, for example, where I live, and it's the same sort of thing. You actually, once you get into it, you discover that there's a lot of things that you didn't know that you didn't know, and it strikes me that perhaps I don't know what you think about this, Lorraine, but perhaps in this situation, would there be would there be a case to be made for having a professional person involved in every board of trustees if it was if it was feasible? Uh, I believe if that were the case, the government couldn't afford us yeah. because you would have to pay for that. If I look at the stats, and you talked about there were something like 70. Yeah, 70 in total. Yeah. Yep, um, who had some kind of intervention. When you look at the fact that there are um, 2,437 schools within the compulsory sector, 70 is a small amount. So you have to look at Mm. the majority of school boards um, are doing the right thing. And doing the right thing is obviously making good decisions in terms of the children's education, but also a big part of their role is around being the employer and ensuring that the decisions they make are to support their principal and their teachers. And when you start to think about that, and when you hear about teachers and their plight around salaries, that starts to get mixed up in the role of what effective governance looks like as well. So it's really complicated. Nick Leggett, School Board of Trustees. Well, I I think it's really important to remind ourselves that this is, a a Board of Trustees is the community's ability to have an influence over the the school, right? And the school school community can, can at a, you know, at a governance level, um, 
assist the principal and the the, the, the principal's team to 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 manage and operate the school and educate the the kids. Um, so that's really important. I think it's a, it's a, it's an important principle that we maintain that. Um, and I think that New Zealand struggles with governance, not just. You know, I think we struggle with it in, in many different spheres, so it's not just in, in, in education. I'm interested, though, Lorraine, to, to understand what are the key, you know, one or two top challenges that you find with schools that have this limited statutory or, or full, you know, full-blown intervention? What are the key sort of problems that, are, that, are, uh, that you see as common? Uh, I suspect the biggest one is lack of professional development, uh, that is also part of our role as um, New Zealand School Trustees Association. Supposedly, is to equip all boards with the skills, the tools, the knowledge and the confidence to be effective governors, whatever that might look like. And because the PED is not compulsory, um, we kind of had to make it attractive for boards just to upskill themselves. So that that's a big issue, is... is the, the level of knowledge a an elected community member needs mm. to be an effective governor. Mm. Thank you, Lorraine. That was good to hear from you. So Lorraine Kerr, President of the New Zealand School Trustees Association. Last year, 54 schools had limited statutory managers uh, put in place and 16 had commissioners, so a total of 70. But as Lorraine pointed out, of the 2,400 schools, pretty good number there, mm. really. Yeah. And again, speaking to the need for professional development, right? Yeah, and especially for these are volunteers, right? I don't think people on on school boards get paid anything, so it's it's um, even more important to have some kind of education, you know, available to them. I think. Yeah, and to feel that support. Well, yeah. this year is a leap year, February twenty ninth. We will have it, but will you be paid for it is the question. Usually employees get four weeks of leave. However, during a leap year, that number doesn't change. Stats NZ says there were 2.2 million people on salaries in June of 2022. So that's a fair few. Jared Ha is a professor of management and Māori business. Kia ora, Jared. Kia ora. Are you working a free day? What do you make yeah. of this? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And and, uh, describing it as a quirk is a good thing. I I have to say, I I did pause and went, yeah, I guess I've been doing it. But but probably the thing to remind people is that you've been, if you're on a salary, you've been doing it since, um, you know, for for at least the last number of decades, right? So it isn't anything new. It is interesting that we've kind of ignored this, I guess, and, until now that somebody brings it up and says, hey, we don't get paid for that extra day. If half the workforce are on an hourly rate, it doesn't bother them. And I'd suggest for those 2.2 million salaried workers, we should probably just be thinking, yeah, that's captured in my salary. Um, and so there's not, I don't think there's really anything to do or, or or anything you'd want to do about it anyway, except maybe maybe on that Thursday this year, is, is if you're going into work, uh, spend some time socialising with your colleagues and perhaps thinking, oh, maybe I'll just work an easy day today because it's, uh, it's leap year and I'm not getting paid extra. <laughs> do people at Infrastructure New Zealand get paid extra for... Uh... <laughs> February the 29th, you, Nick? Well, you've just you've just stimulated that question in my head, oh. so I will have to find out, <laughs> won't I? <laughs> we'll have to do something for them, I think. 
Nikki, have you been paid for February 29th in the past or I, are you expecting it this year? I am self-employed, so it matters to me not at all. But uh, I think, Jared, you're, you're setting a dangerous precedent by saying people should slack off on this day because, can I just point out, we've got bigger issues around this whole topic because women actually work seven weeks of the year for free. Uh, Pacifica women even more, more than a month and a half more, in fact, Māori women a month more. So uh, the gender pay gap is a whole lot of people not being paid what they should be being paid. Uh, and if the women all started to say, hey, we're not going to work well, because we're not being paid for this time, for seven weeks from the, uh, from the 26th of November, I think we'd have some problems in the workforce. Or can I just jump in there? Or would we have some solutions? I agree. I find the gender pay gap frustratingly stubborn, right? And it yeah. always seems to say, oh, we've improved it by 0.2%. And I think <laughs> that's embarrassing. Don't don't celebrate that. Um, maybe if we had all the women say, okay, this last seven weeks I'm not working, and we had half the men join in and say, yeah, I'll, I'll support you on that, then bosses would probably go, oh, gosh, I will look at the salary component and see what we can do because – yeah, I agree. That's a frustrating gap, and I and I do acknowledge the the wider gaps for Maori and Pacifica, especially Wahini. So, yes, you're right. Those are far bigger things we should be um, dealing with than working uh, one extra day every four years. I must say, <laughs> I like it, Jared. You're agitating for some some pretty strong action there later in the year. I do it. like it too, and yeah. I do also like that you're an agitator with a sense of humour and you keep that smile on your face while you propose quite massive movement. <laughs> <laughs> That's an uprising. It's an uprising, Jared. Thank you for that. There we have it. We are coming to the end of the programme and I wanted to just give a moment for some more SUV feedback. <laughs> Thank you, Nick and Nikki, for your patience as we come to the end of the programme. But we've got enough time to hear. Uh, let's see. This is Les Newman. We have a seven-seat SUV 4x4, which we use to carry friends instead of taking three cars. Mm -hmm. We are also skiers and mountain bikers and need the space for our gear. Mm -hmm. We also own a trailer hire business and need the towing capacity. Our car only takes up one car park when we park and only one space on the road when driving. <laughs> All these people justifying their choices. They Can I are. Just say, we didn't used to have... Well, they're speaking to their truth. They're speaking to their reasons. Once upon a time, we didn't have reasons. SUVs at all. And we seemed to get by, didn't we? We seemed to be able to carry people around and carry the kids around and do all the sports and tow all the things. Much higher road toll back in those days. Higher road toll. And there were the out. big cars, right? I remember my grandfather, who was an avid caravaneur, who had the big V8. I'm not sure how good that is on the... Uh, environment, but he did pull that Valiant around the country, or the caravan on the Valiant. SUVs are very practical, says Ken. I'm 71 years old. My father's in his 90s, could easily get in and out of our SUV. Yeah, I, I acknowledge that that, isn't, that is a thing. That is useful, yeah. But I do want to come back to another one. SUVs and parking. SUVs and parking. There goes the music. <laughs> Thank you for all your texts. <laughs> Nick and Nikki, we've been saved by the bell, as it were. Great to have your company on the panel today, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your ears. Thank you for your time and your energy joining us on the panel. Checkpoint is next with Lisa Owen. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, 
FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.